Welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Linda Newland has devoted a good part of her life to expanding the presence of women in sailing. And she's an accomplished sailor herself. She's done numerous single-handed races, including multiple San Francisco to Hawaii Transpacs. She holds the record for the fastest woman single-handed Transpac in a race from San Francisco to Japan. And she skippered an all-female Transpac team in 1997. She holds 100-ton captain's license, ran a yacht delivery service, She's a maritime attorney, a nautical science instructor, a certified ASA instructor, and is the past president of the National Women's Sailing Association. And nearly 30 years ago, she co-founded the Island Yacht Club's Northern California Women's Sailing Seminar. And they powered through the pandemic this year, well, last year now, holding the 28th annual seminar in September. Linda has some great stories to share. So enjoy this conversation. My name is Linda Newland. I presently live in Port Hadlock, Washington, which is very close to Port Townsend out here on the Olympic Peninsula. However, I started my sailing career in San Francisco Bay and lived there for most of the competitive sailing career. Started sailing about 1970, had a lot of mishaps because neither my husband at the time nor I had an opportunity to take lessons and we didn't know anybody who sailed. We had a sailboat and took the mast out under a bridge and a few cute things like that, learning how to sail together. What boat uh, was that that you were sailing? uh, It was a Columbia 22. Okay. So an older design, it was built like in 1968. We would get out on the bay and we would get totally rounded up and flattened. And we had no clue what reefing was about. Turns out that the main cell had no reef points anyway. <laughs> so we had a lot of uh, misadventures, shall we say. And he sort of uh, decided that sailing wasn't for him. And I really enjoyed it, but I had not had any time at the helm. So I fortunately met two women who were good sailors and one of them owned a Santana 22. So the three of us started racing on San Francisco Bay about 1973-74. We had a lot of fun with that boat and then I got a chance to get at the helm and Then we started a women's sailing group at Island Yacht Club in Alameda. And from there, I started crewing on other people's boats and uh, learning a lot more about sailing. And I got the bug from listening to friends that were getting ready to do the 1978 single-handed race to Hawaii, which was the first one sailed and uh, I, thought, wow, that would be really neat to be able to do that. And I had the opportunity that year to sail over with a friend of mine who started the race, but had to drop out because of gear damage. Mm -hmm. And he decided that since he wasn't going to be competitive, that he wanted someone to double hand with him to Hawaii. So I did that on a Ranger 29. And was that your first ocean experience? Yes, it was. What do you recall about that passage? 
I recalled that I worked more than he did because he was sick the first four to five days and never got out of his bunk. So he taught me from the bunk how to adjust the wind vane. And I already knew how to do sail changes and that sort of thing. But what I didn't know was celestial navigation. Ah. And that taught me a lesson to be learned that as soon as I returned to the Bay Area, I was going to take a class and learn it. So I didn't feel like I didn't know where I was going. I had taken piloting, so I knew how to lay out a course on the chart and how to follow a compass and, and kind of through a DR track, figure out where we were. But offshore, of course, celestials, the thing that you need. Actually, the first several days, I was more worried about him dying oh, <laughs> and geez, leaving geez. me out there, other than just turning the boat around and going, oh, nine, oh, and, you know, hit the shore wherever I could. <laughs> Finally, I determined what the problem was. He was dehydrated and he mm. was low on sodium. And fortunately, he had salt pills on board because he had been throwing up so much. He'd lost a lot of liquid. So once I started feeding him salt tablets, he came around. So it was a passage to Maui. So we arrived at Lahaina, about a 15-day passage. So I learned a lot. Good. <laughs> I uh, cooked all three meals a day when he began eating. And I stood, you know, split the watch system with him. So he had a pretty easy time of it when I look back on it. But I was so new. I didn't know I was really being taken advantage of. Oh, man. But it sounds like you, you learned a lot on that first passage. I did. I learned how to steer at night, hand steer at night. We usually left the wind vane on, but as we got closer to Hawaii with the following seas, it became more difficult for the wind vane to steer on the downwind. And so I started steering at night because he didn't want to. <laughs> so I learned a lot about nighttime steering. Anyway, it was a, it was a good learning experience. And what I, the lesson I took really away from it was I was ready to get ready for the next single-handed race two years from then in 1980, because I felt that I'd sort of cut my teeth on this one. I want to talk about that. But first, I'm curious what was the impetus to start sailing in the first place? Had you done any sailing before then? You mentioned you started with your husband. Was it you or he who was the driver behind that? He bought the boat from a friend of his who wanted to get rid of it. And it, what we didn't know then that we found out later was that the friend was frustrated because he didn't take lessons and he had some of the same experiences we had later. So he just wanted to dump the boat. So he sold it to my husband for like, I don't know, $2,500, something like that. With all of these great, you know, promotional comments, like you're gonna love sailing. You just have <laughs> to have this boat. This is such a deal. Neither of us knew anything. I mean, we had the boat for probably six months before it ever went out of the slip because we didn't even know how to start the outboard engine to get it out of the slip, let alone even put a sail on it. So it wasn't until some people down the dock from us that were observing us coming down on weekends, cleaning the boat, polishing the boat, 
then realized that we had no idea of what to do with the boat, that they came over and offered to take us out on the Alameda Oakland estuary for a sail, we said, sure. So we watched them carefully as they put the sails on it and got us out of the slip and took us on a ride for our lives. It was probably blowing 20 knots in the estuary. <laughs> and so we, that was our initiation to sailing. And after that, we just sort of bumbled along on our own. It's a wonder we didn't kill ourselves <laughs> until the fateful day that we went under the Park Street Bridge uh, with the mast. And then uh, and, and I fell off the boat and had to swim ashore when the boat went sideways because the mast caught under the bridge and the boat went over on its side. And jeez, that must have been scary. I didn't think about being scared. I was thinking more about saving my life. Yeah. We continued on, like I said, until until we both were pretty frustrated. And he just he decided to sell the boat. But he also the other the big thing that uh, kind of turned me around and, re and I realized that I did have the capability of sailing was we were on the bay one afternoon still in our our infancy of sailing and we got knocked around pretty good which was not the first time he was cursing at the boat saying it was the boat's fault I just spoke up and I said it's not the boat's fault it's that we don't know what we're doing. We need to take lessons and learn what we're doing out here. So he turned on me and got angry at me for mm. saying that. And so he says, I'm leaving the boat and I'm, I'm taking off and you can get the boat home any way you can. So a friend happened to come by at that time with a powerboat and he waved the guy over. He jumped on the friend's powerboat and left me. Wow. So I'm out in the bay on this boat. I'd never touched the helm before, but I'm a good observer. And so then I got angry and I thought, I'm going to get this boat back in the slip. And I did. I managed to get back, sail it back to the estuary, get the sails down, get the engine started. And I did bring it back in the slip. And that was pretty much the end of the marriage right there. Oh, my gosh. Good for you. And and what do you think? I mean, that sounds like a very empowering moment for you. Was it that point we said, gosh, I can do this and I want to do this? Yeah, that was pretty much it. I mean, I enjoyed being on the boat. I didn't enjoy all the drama that went along with not knowing what we were doing, but yeah. I really enjoyed being on the water. Once I realized, once I was in control, I had the helm and I could do what I wanted to with the sails, it was, it was empowering because then I realized the boat wasn't controlling me. I could control the boat. Yeah. So that was my first single-handed moment. And then probably wasn't long after that that I started sailing with the other two women on the Santana 22. And let's jump ahead back to that single-handed trip across the Pacific, how long from your very first single-handed experience, which was not an intentional single-handed trip, to the very intentional race? That was about 10 years. Okay. And in between that time, like I said, we started a women's sailing group at the yacht club. I joined Island Yacht Club in 74. 
and was instrumental in getting the women on the water that wanted to learn. We started teaching each other. I started crewing a lot on racing boats with other members of the club, continued to race with the women for a while. And then in 1978, uh, I met my next husband and we raced a, a little um, Coronado 25. Mm. And then from that, we bought a Yamaha 25 and I started single-handing that in offshore races out of San Francisco up to Drake's Bay, Half Moon Bay, around the Farallons and got my feet wet on that. And then he wanted to buy a Yamaha 33 and move up to a bigger boat. And I first said, I don't think we can afford that. And then he said, well, and this is where the carrot gets held out. He said, if we buy the 33, you can take the boat and single-hand it to Hawaii in 1980. So of course I'd been waiting for the opportunity to do that single-handed race to Hawaii since I had already done the double-handed delivery in 78. Yeah. So that's that was my first, you know, long distance single-handed race was from San Francisco to Hawaii. And that was the second single-handed sailing society transpath. What do you remember about the preparation for that? Mostly that it cost a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other is that any kind of a experience like that and getting ready is really all about how many friends you have and how many friends you still have at the end of the effort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sort of don't don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> no, really, people really came together. And uh, you know, I had to put a wind vane on the boat, mm. and I had a just a real simple in 1980 that wasn't much on the market for electronic autopilots. So I had an old tiller master that was almost worthless, but did work some of the time. The wind vane was obviously a lot more sufficient for the job. I had been taking classes. I, I took celestial navigation classes after the crossing in 78. So I was proficient in mm -hmm. celestial, which was obviously a big thing. So it was a matter of just provisioning, but I felt I felt very comfortable and, uh, and ready to do the race in uh, 1980. But I was doing it more as I thought of it as more of an endurance trial. I didn't have any great expectations of placing or doing well competitively. I just wanted to complete the crossing and not embarrass myself or my yacht club. And what do you remember from, from that crossing? The thing that I do remember is that about four days out of San Francisco, I realized that my DR track and my celestial were way off. Huh. And so, of course, being new at celestial, I immediately thought my celestial was wrong, that my DR track was correct. And then I came across another competitor in the high. We were sort of drifting around for a couple of days and I couldn't see him. I knew he was over the horizon because a container ship came through and told us that they could see each of us on either side of them. Huh. But yet we couldn't, the two of us competitors could not see one another. So we knew that we were quite close. When we compared notes on our navigation, 
I realized that my celestial was correct, but my DR track was off. That gave me a lot more confidence on my celestial. And then I had to go back and figure out why my DR track was off. And what I found out is that I had an old analog knot meter and it was reading exactly 30% low. And it was consistent. It was so consistent that I never bothered ever adjusting it. I just made the correction for the amount that it was off. <laughs> wow. That must have um, upped your confidence yet again, completing that race. Well, it just whetted my appetite for more open ocean racing. I, I actually loved the whole experience. And I didn't, I didn't fixate too much on whether or not I was gonna see the island but when I did see Kauai through the clouds, I have to say it was a great day. I bet. And, and I was on target. So I was happy to hear that because there had been a woman that had done the single-handed race or trip years before I did. And her story was that she missed Hawaii and kept sailing beyond it until she realized that she had to have passed the island chain itself and had to turn around and come back. And I didn't want to repeat that error. How many women had done the single-handed race uh, when you did it? There was nobody in the first race in 78. And there were two of us that raced in 1980. The other woman raced a Wilderness 21. Her name was Amy Boyer. So we were the only two at that time. And since then there's been more, of course. How many times have, have you done that race since, or other ocean races, I should ask? I mean, you said it whetted your appetite. Well, so the next time I did the single-handed race to Hawaii was in 1986. So, so six years later, I did it on a hawk farm, a 28-foot hawk farm. I've been married to my present husband exactly a year. We celebrated our first anniversary during the race because he was racing <laughs> in Olsen 30 the same year. <laughs> That's great. He was so far ahead in the Olsen 30 that we didn't even have VHF contact. We had to have friends that were in the race relay messages back and forth between the two of us. I love it. A chain of happy anniversaries back and forth across the VHF. Right. So between 80 and 86, I did the Trans-Pacific Yacht Race in, in 1981 between San Francisco and Kobe, Japan. How long did and that I, take? 52 days. Wow. And there that were was... 11 of us in that race. There were 10 Japanese men and myself. That was sponsored by Nippon Ocean Racing Club in Tokyo. Somebody had told me about that race. I was, well, actually, I was approached by a man in the Bay Area who did commissioning for Yamaha yachts for the dealer in uh, Oakland. He knew about the race. He was Japanese himself. He knew about the race. I didn't know about it. He brought it to my attention and suggested that I try to get sponsorship to do it the following year. And so that's how I started out on that journey. And uh, I was able to get sponsorship from Centauri International, which is a liquor company. And, um, I think partly they had run the race twice before and 
they didn't have any American competitors that had signed up before I did. And so I think that helped me um, get the sponsorship because I was the only American and the only woman in the race and all the rest of the competitors in 81 were Japanese men that had either shipped their boats over here to San Francisco or had sailed them over here to turn around and race back to Japan. Fascinating. Which brings up the question of, of getting the boats back. Did you usually do the return trip from Hawaii and did you sail back from Japan? I did the return trip from Hawaii in both cases in 80 and 86 uh, with one other crew member in 80, my husband then and one other person came back with me. And then in 86, I did double-handed back on the 28-footer. In 81, I was fortunate enough to get the boat a ride home on American president lines. And this was another interesting story. And then I was afraid that I was gonna to have to take most of my sponsorship money to pay for the boat to be shipped home. And a fellow approached me who was a VP with American president lines. And it turned out that he had the identical boat to mine, but it was in Thailand. And he needed to get his boat back to Oakland. And so, my boat was being shipped back courtesy of Yamaha, who was not a sponsor, but they sort of jumped into the pool late in the game and said, well, since Centauri already had me nailed down, they said, we'll ship your boat back and provide a cradle for it. So you can have it mounted you know, on the deck of this American president line ship. So of course that was great. So. This fellow from American President Line says, well, I'll make you a deal. I need your cradle to get my boat back from Thailand to Oakland. So we'll ship your boat back for free if I can have your cradle. <laughs> Not a bad deal. A very good deal, right. So it didn't take me long to jump on that one. What so was that boat? That was a Yamaha 33. Oh, okay. Yeah, you mentioned that. Right. Okay. Yamaha 33, yeah. One of the reasons that I reached out to you is you teach sailing and you teach sailing seminars for women. I have so many questions about this. I'm curious about it. Um, but my first is, it sounds like one of your first experiences after your initial not so good experience sailing on the bay was, was sailing with some women and that really helped get you into it. What was it about that? sailing with other women that was a positive experience? Well, the first one was I didn't get cursed at. <laughs> yeah, that helps. <laughs> now that I, I, I'm a professional, I, I would call myself a professional sailor. I've done a lot of deliveries. I have my 100 ton license, which I've had since the early 90s. And I've done probably 20 deliveries from Hawaii to the mainland. And I've been uh, I'm a certified American Sailing Association instructor and have taught a lot of classes. I was working for Club Nautique when I was still in the Bay Area. One of the things that I've noticed is that women relate to women much differently on a boat than either men to women or men to men. And women discuss what they're doing before they do it. They want to know what the plan is. 
So you do a briefing before you do things. Obviously there's emergency situations, you can't do that. But in most cases, round the buoys or whatever, there's a discussion about who's doing what, there's, there's uh, jobs assigned, and there's a lot more discussion about how things are doing. And the women seem to be more open to input. So they're more, I would say more cautious about how they move forward. Men tend to, and I'm not making any judgments on what's better or other, sure. but men tend to sort of jump in, even if they're not sure of what they're doing, they're, they just want to get it done. And so they're more impetuous that way. Then when they get into the middle and they're not sure of what's happening, well, then by then things can go wrong. But it's just the way they approach it and, and the learning. It's just an observation I've gathered over the years. The other thing that's helped me with my teaching is that I'm, I have a master's degree in special ed. And one of the things that I've noted, which obviously I've known knew for many years, is that there are a lot of people as adults that have learning disabilities. And so in my teaching, it's very easy for me to spot that and make compensations in my teaching style to accommodate people that have gaps in their learning techniques and their learning styles. It seemed like the women were just a little bit more nurturing. And especially for me, my, my ego was a little damaged after some of the experiences I'd had. But not surprisingly, it sounds. What are some of the differences for you about sailing for yourself? Sailing single-handed is obviously a unique experience versus teaching sailing. Well, in teaching sailing, and I have to say that I've, I've done charters where when I was working for Club Nautique, I did several charters where I was the skipper or I was the captain. I had usually a first mate who was a good sailor, but may not have had blue water experience. And then the rest of the crew were all novices. I did a Pacific Cup race with a group like that in 1988. Uh, I did another one in 2000. And I've done deliveries back taking students mm -hmm. um, as crew, sometimes none that had ever stepped foot on a boat before. And the difference is that when you're the captain and you have inexperienced people on board, you have to be alert 24 seven. Mm. So it's very physically, it's draining, but it's also inspiring because you see the gains in education and the knowledge and the competency that these people gained by being out there. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of give back on that. I enjoy seeing that. And that's why I like to teach, whether it be male, female, or whatever, is I love to see people start out at point A, gain that competency, and then just fall in love with sailing and probably be a lifelong sailor. Tell us a little bit about the seminars that you're doing now, the teaching that you're doing now. When you first um, approached me, we were just leading up to the Northern California uh, it's IYC sponsors it or Island Yacht Club Women's Sailing Seminar. And this was our 28th year. 
Um, I was a co-founder of that with one of the two women that I started sailing with back in the 70s. And uh, she's passed now, I'm still around. But we started it in 91 or 92. I have to subtract the numbers. And of course this year, because of the COVID, we couldn't do face-to-face -face on the water. We decided to do it virtually. Mm -hmm. And in the past, our women's sailing seminars have always been held on the estuary with land-based uh, classes and different aspects of skills. And we also do on the water and it's been a two day event. So we teach skills one day and then on Sunday, on a Saturday and then on Sunday, we actually have races on the estuary we let the group split up and the people that want to learn how to race, we get matched boats and we do the racing. And then the other half that want to do more cruising are taken out into the bay on larger boats and learn how to reef and heave to and do a lot of the different techniques that they might need if they go offshore cruising. And so this year we did two days. We started out on Friday with a group of women that had been racing together on the estuary for quite a few years, talking about how they got into sailing, how they started racing and their experiences. And then on Saturday and Sunday, we had individual, some pre-recorded videos of different aspects of techniques and skills. And then we also had some live panels on Sunday of women talking about crew to captain. How do you get into sailing? And once you become crew, how do you work your way up to being the captain of your own ship? And then we also talked a little bit about getting a Coast Guard license, you know, and be more of a professional sailor. And then we had a, a quite a four or five women who were on their boats cruising internationally. So we had one woman from New Zealand on, Zoom, we had one from Panama and we had a woman from Mexico. I think that and, was Bayan, right? And Bayan Gifford, right? Yeah, she, she, she was on the podcast not too long ago. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. But so anyway, that was kind of the summation of what we did virtually. And we were very happy with the outcome and we got good feedback from the people who we're on and I think now I think what we're going to do is move forward and try to do more of these little seminars like an hour here and there during this winter when we're shut down essentially for however long it is because the women are just anxious to connect with each other and to have an outlet from their home and home teaching or whatever they're doing to get some time to their self, themselves to experience camaraderie with other women with like interests. So I think we're going to try to address that and keep this rolling. That's so great. We Where would women go who are interested in signing up for these? The Island Yacht Club site? The Island Yacht Club site one way would be that it's iyc.org or we also have a separate web page now that's uh, womenssailingseminar.com great and i'll put links to that along with the show so people can find it
what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in sailing, sailing opportunities, sailing community that you've seen over the, your time sailing? From some different perspectives, as far as actually sailing on boats, there are a lot more women that are welcome aboard uh, boats. It was a lot tougher back in the 70s to get on a boat, uh, especially somebody who didn't know you, um, yeah. somebody within your own yacht club, but wasn't so difficult if they were really hard up for a crew. But um, people didn't uh, trust women as crew members. I think there's a lot more opportunity for women to get on boats and crew. There's not such a demarcation between male and female on board. I think that it's still tougher to get on some of the high profile races. You've got to really know what you're doing and have a reputation for being a top-notch sailor. Not too much different from taking a, a man on board as crew, like in Transpac to Hawaii or any of the round the world races. I mean, you've obviously got to prove yourself to get on the boat, but there's far fewer women, I think, than uh, women sailors would like to see mm -hmm. on those, on the high profile races. One of the biggest uh, changes I've seen has more to do with economics. And when I started sailing and when we started the Women's Sailing Seminar back in the early 90s, it was difficult to find a time to hold it because women weren't owning their own boats. It was a family boat. So if the husband, who was usually the primary captain of the boat, signed up to do YRA racing or class racing. They had their whole schedule laid out for the year. So we had to work around that to get any boats that we could use on the water for teaching. So now women are one of the big drivers in marketing. If you talk to national marine marketing, you know, they, they're saying there are a lot more advertising that are pointed toward women because women have the economic ability to buy their own boats and they're doing that. So I've seen a lot more individual boats owned by women in the ensuing years. And I see that as a growing trend. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful change to see that more women have that economic independence to make choices to, to own boats and enjoy the sport on their own without as you said, having to be a quote unquote family boat. Right. Thinking of other, other things that have changed, I think for the better is that when I joined Island Yacht Club, it was in its infancy. It started in 1970 and I joined in 74. I served on the board for quite a few years in different capacities, but I was never Commodore until 1983, I believe it was. And I was only the second woman Commodore of a yacht club in the greater Bay Area. Mm. And uh, the first woman Commodore was at Sausalito Cruising Club. So there was not that opportunity for women to, well, first of all, there were a lot of clubs that still didn't allow women to be single individual members of the club. They could be members if they were married to a male member of the club but they weren't allowed to be individual members on their own. 
I don't know for sure, but I think that's pretty well changed throughout all of the yacht clubs in the Bay Area. Um, so there are many, many more women commodores and leaders of their own yacht club. And I am happy to see the, the leadership role that women have taken in the sport. And I note that uh, US Sailing now has a president, Corey Sertle, who's a woman. And, and they've had women uh, presidents before of US Sailing. Anyway, those are the kinds of things that I see happening that make me feel good that women are gradually working into you know, leadership roles along with the men. Uh, which I think is well-deserved. And I think also that that's uh, a good message to send to women that are thinking about getting into the sport and probably more encouraging for women to get into the sport. It's not considered so much just a, a male-dominated sport. I know that U.S. Sailing also has started a diversity inclusion committee, mm -hmm. and they're very aggressively going out trying to recruit more diversity into the sport and getting away from the all male, all white thinking that most people have. And, and I really applaud them for that. That's something that I work very hard on. I'm on the board of the National Women's Sailing Association. And that's definitely one of our major focuses that we've started this year as well is getting more diversity into our board. Our board has been diverse, but to increase that diversity and to encourage more women of color and all races to get into the sport and try to find avenues for them to do that. That's wonderful to hear because the changes that you're talking about that have happened over the years, um, bringing more women into the sport is just proof that it can change. And there's certainly, we've got a long way to go uh, in terms of diversity and, and, and bringing more women in. What haven't we touched on that, you, that you'd like to mention or talk about any particular sailing uh, stories? Sailing stories. Well, I... Um... I've done a couple trans, you know, trans packs from uh, LA to Honolulu, but they've both been with all women crews. Uh -huh. And so in 1995, I was asked to be navigator sort of at the last minute on a crew that was basically Southern California women on a Cal 40. And I have some lifelong uh, friendships from that one. And we were, Unfortunately, it was a very slow year. So we ended up DFL <laughs> and we missed the party, but we had a good time. That was the, that was the big thing is we, you know, we didn't embarrass ourselves too much. And there was an Oyster 55 or something out there that we kind of were vying for the finish line with. And I think Actually, I think they were behind us. I, don't, I guess we weren't actually last. But anyway, that was a fun time. You know, that was the first time in 95 that I'd actually sailed with all women and done a race. And I never thought I would ever do that. I, I expected, I've always had been on mixed crews 
as far as the distance races went. And I had a lot of fun. But because we were so slow, I said to my co-navigator, she was my assistant navigator, I said, I'm going to do this race in 97, but I'm going to do it on my boat and we're going to be a lot faster. That's what I worked for. My boat at that time was a boat that my husband had designed and built out of all carbon fiber to do the single-handed Transpac in 92, which he did. He built the boat and raced it and won it in 92. Wow. And he beat the next boat, boat for boat, by four days. <laughs> so she was a downwind flyer. I mean, that's what she was designed to do. And so the deal was, he said, well, you can take her on a single-handed race, next one, or if you want to do crude, well, then use her for that. So I said, okay. So I waited until 97 and said, cashed in the chips and said, okay, this is my year. So I put together a crew with some of the same folks that had done the 95 race. We raced her um, in 97 and had a lot of wind that year. So it was a fast race and we finished in 10 days and something and got second in our division. So we were wow. pretty happy with, we were pretty happy with that. That sounds like a great race, a great trip. One of our most exciting moments on that race was, fortunately I was at the helm that day and we threw up our biggest kite in about 25 knots and we were scooting doing 16, 17 knots, scooting down the waves. We had runners on the boat for mm -hmm. the mast, of course. And fortunately I had my weather runner on which I normally do. And we had a permanent backstay. Well, the permanent backstay decided to part. Oh. And so there was a small shackle that was probably, unfortunately, undersized to begin with. And it basically, from the pressure of the boat coming off of the waves and slamming, the shackle opened up, it spread open. And so the pin came out. Mm. And so the backstay parted at that point. And when I heard it bang, I was looking up thinking I was, the mast was coming down, but what saved it, of course, was the runner holding it. So we doused the spinnaker and assessed what the problem was and replaced the shackle with something larger, put the chute back up and we were underway in about an hour. Oh my gosh, you were lucky. Yes, we were very, well, very lucky. Lucky, but also, of course, you were using the uh, the runner correctly, so that prevented the disaster. Wow, what a story! Well, Linda, it has been a real pleasure to speak with you. Well, it's been fun to recount the history. <laughs> That's it for this episode. You can find the Women's Sailing Seminar Series at womenssailingseminar.com Thanks as always for listening. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing. <laughs>